On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about the nuclear, Pickering nuclear plant situation. Obviously nothing happened. Amber Alert style warning went off. Everybody got scared. Nothing happened. But the question isn't tonight about the system. It's not about the warning. The question is, could that ever happen at the Pickering nuclear plant? Could there ever be a meltdown like at Chernobyl? Well, we'll try and find out. Also, we're going to be chatting about Well, the Houston Astros cheating. Should they have lost their World Series title? Major League Baseball says they cheated, and they cheated to win a championship. That being the case, should they then lose that championship that they cheated to win? That and lots more coming up. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Welcome back to the Scott Radley Show here on 900 CHML. Uh, it's probably, almost certainly, you were woken up the other day with that uh, amber alert, or what we thought was an amber, amber alert signal. Uh, this time, though, it was something different. Apparently, we were led to believe there was something happening at the Pickley, Pickering nuclear plant. Uh, didn't sound good. Thankfully, nothing was nothing was actually happening. But I want to bring in Josek, who is the McMaster senior health physicist. He is part of his job is to protect the McMaster community from radiation related risks. He joins us now. Joe, thanks for doing this today. Yeah, no problem, Scott. So uh, when I heard this, you, you probably got the same alarm, right? You saw this thing go off this morning or the other morning. On Sunday morning, uh, yeah, yes. I think everybody did. What when you saw that and you uh, saw nuclear and Pickering? What was the first thing that went through your mind? Well, uh, ha- having uh, having worked there, obviously, uh, you know, concerned, but uh, we, uh, you know, wanted to follow up and find out why. I was really surprised to see it come through an Amber Alert, um, and uh, and in that way. But uh, but yeah, I'm sure as everyone else, I had a lot of questions. A lot of time has been spent on the station earlier today with Bill Kelly and with Scott Thompson talking about some of the issues behind it. I want to get to something a little bit different, Joe, and that is, could something like this actually happen at Pickering? You've worked there. You know how this industry works. You know how this stuff works. Is there a chance, the way things are set up, that we could ever have a Chernobyl-type situation in Pickering? So I can tell you that there's a, there's a number of barriers in place to ensure that a, an event uh, like Chernobyl doesn't happen in Canada. Um, and so from in a comparison purpose, it would take a lot longer to explain all the differences between us and, uh, and them. Um, having said that, though, our regulator, uh, the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, puts in a number of requirements uh, for all um, nuclear facilities, so not just nuclear reactors, even uh, hospitals, our little research reactor here at McMaster. Um, they put in all the, the regulatory requirements to ensure that we cannot operate our facilities to the point that uh, we do have an accident scenario. Uh, they also require us to have a number of uh, barriers in place that um, cause us to alarm and to uh, shut down our facilities prior to getting to the point where an accident could occur. So the so although yes, accidents can happen. Uh, the point is that there is a number of uh, barriers in place and controls in place to ensure that they do not happen and that we can react and respond and prevent them from happening in the first place. Uh, and I would say in Canada. Uh, has definitely been recognized as uh, as a world leader when it comes to our regulatory practices to ensure that we don't allow our facilities to operate to the point where an accident would occur. I don't want to confuse Hollywood with real life. There's always a risk of doing that, especially when we watch cop movies or whatever else. But many of us have seen the movie, the, the miniseries Chernobyl that was on HBO. I don't know if you've seen it. It would probably would be right up your alley to watch that. Uh, one well, of the... Th- 
Surprisingly so, enough, I have not seen it. People really? keep asking me, and I, and I really feel like I should, but I'm afraid if I watch it, I, I'm going to be disappointed with how <laughs> they're they're doing things. But I, but I will watch it at some point. Well, one of the and the reason I bring it up is again, I mean, I understand that Hollywood takes liberties, but the one thing when you say we have all these safeguards in place. It seemed, at least the way it was presented, that they did as well, but that human error was over. It was able to override some of the best practices or some of the warnings or some of the alarms that were going off. Uh, so I, I go back to my point. Uh, do we have a situation with Canada's nuclear plants that would prevent somebody from saying, no, no, ignore that alarm, just go ahead and do that and get ourselves into trouble? So again, I would have to say that our regulatory body doesn't doesn't allow that, right? So we we have a license that and a number of conditions in place, not just a single single individual. So uh, particularly when you talk about critical systems, uh, critical systems always have backups. Um, also for any decisions like that, you have multiple people performing the operations. So uh, I would say that you know, although yes, human errors can occur. Uh, again, there's a number of barriers in place to ensure that um, they are identified prior to leading up to an accident scenario. Does that exist with all modern systems now in North America? Any, any nuclear facilities, would, we be, would they all fall under that same sort of guideline? Yeah, so I would say that, you know, following the Chernobyl accident and following the Fukushima accident, you know, all of the, re- the regulator required all operators um, to put corrective actions in place from lessons learned from those events. Uh, but again, I, I would say that you know, without getting into too much detail with our can-do uh, design uh, for nuclear power plants here in Canada, you know, it is a different design and, and it is a safer design. Uh, uses natural uh, uranium, not enriched uranium. And again, I could, I could rhyme off with a, a number of things that show how we're different. But most importantly, we're different in the sense that um, we require a uh, full containment structure. We require um, vacuum building. Um, so th- I'm, I think I'm getting into too much detail here. But ultimately, a number of barriers are in place within our modern regulatory framework that would prevent um, an accident from that like occurring here. So and may- a lot of the corrective actions that have been put in place uh, following those events ensure that a rea- an, an, an event like that was not to happen uh, with in Canada. So maybe you can then clarify something that may be an urban legend that's been going around, and that was in light of this alarm going off. I was reading somewhere that said that f- people who live within a certain distance of the Pickering nuclear plant have been given a pill or something, an anti-radiation pill they're supposed to take. Is that not true then? Uh, so that is true. There is uh, pills that are distributed. Um, it's a requirement um, out of our, our licenses that, uh, um, that for nuclear power plants, they are required to distribute pills within a certain radius from their reactor uh, to, um, and if you want, I can get into details as to, you know, what that does. But ultimately, if, if uh, a significant release was to occur, it would minimize, it, it would impact primarily that population, and then and those pills are provided in order to minimize the, the dose impact to that population. Joe, you've, I mean, you've explained pretty clearly that it would be, what's the word, highly unlikely, almost impossible? What, what would be the word you would put on then the chance that something could happen that would be seriously troubling in North America? Well, I, I don't know politically what the right word is to use, but I, I would say it's highly unlikely with the, with the regulatory framework and licensing basis that we have. Now, that said, we do have, and and here's something I think a lot of people know, but some may not, we do have a a nuclear reactor, right? It is a reactor at McMaster University. Yes, we do have a research reactor at McMaster University. Explain, now, is a research reactor different from any other kind of reactor? 
Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, very different than other kinds of reactor. And, and the one that we have here at McMaster, and, and I, I would love to do a whole show about talking about it. It's, it's a really an amazing place. I've been with McMaster for the last year and a half or so uh, after, uh, after leaving the nuclear power industry. But uh, the research reactor that we have here is uh, the only self-funded research reactor in the world. And it does a number of things, uh, but ultimately, um, you know, has an impact nationally, regionally, locally. Um, one of the main things a lot of people don't know is, uh, is as far as differences, uh, yeah, very different. You know, we don't make electricity here, right? We don't generate power. Uh, what we do is we generate neutrons, and we use those neutrons in a number of different ways. Uh, one of the most important ones right now um, actually is the production of radiopharmaceuticals, and specifically one called radioiodine-125. Uh, currently, McMaster is the only supplier in the world providing this important radiopharmaceutical treatment to patients suffering from prostate cancer and uh, because the other two suppliers have gone down uh, just prior to the holidays and our, uh, one of them is in the process of coming back. So we've been, uh, the operations group there has been working tirelessly to try and meet the demand of the world for radiopharmaceutical production. Um, we also do uh, neutron radiography, uh, which includes radiography of turbine blades um, manufactured in North America looking for defects and ensuring that they're safe prior to their use in airplanes. Um, but as far as, um, you know, how we're different, absolutely, you know, very different. Uh, one thing that's very different as well is that, you know, it's uh, the reactor we have here, it's operated for 60 years. It's a very simple design that allows operations to start and stop the reactor every day. So in comparison to a nuclear power plant, which operates 24-7 because they're making electricity for you to be able to turn on the light switch in your house, uh, in our case, you know, we're here to perform research and do some operations, and we ultimately turn our reactor on in the morning and turn it off uh, every evening. And so uh, it's a very simple design, much smaller scale. Uh, and again, the purpose of the reactor is to generate neutrons for research and operations, not to generate power. Would the same then safety features or same protocols exist or even different or better ones? Or what, what, would, you, what would be the case with, with this one compared to others? You've talked about the safety of Pickering or the safety of other ones. Is it the same here? Yeah, so uh, definitely a number of safety requirements are in uh, imposed. Uh, not only like we internally do our own safety analysis, and then we uh, we have to prove to ourselves that it's safe to operate, and then we need to convince a regulator to give us a license to operate. Uh, so we do have a license to operate. It does have a number of uh, of requirements when it comes to safe operation. Um, as far as um, again going back to differences, we are an extremely it's a very simple design of our reactor, and it's a very small reactor, so it makes it very easy for us to um, manage it and. There's a number of controls in place to ensure that we are uh, continually monitoring and aware of any issues. Uh, but at the same time, because we can turn our reactor off and on um, relatively easily, uh, it, it makes it a very um, simple reactor to manage. So as I said, every morning, you know, they start up that reactor and every night they turn it off. And uh, they've done that for 60 years. They do um, a great job. They know that reactor very well. Um, and it just, it's very simple. Uh, another thing that McMaster has that, um, even though it's not required, is a full containment structure. So a lot of research reactors in the world do not have a containment structure. Um, and it's actually not credited in our design basis, but we do also have a full containment structure as well, um, which is a, a, an additional safety feature that, although not required, um, just adds on to all of the different safety controls we have in place in our reactor. Just before I let you go, I, I just want to go back for a minute because you mentioned the, uh, uh, remind me of the name, the one in Japan that had the, the earthquake and the tsunami that... Um, Fukushima. Thank you, Fukushima, yes. And that one, as I understand it, was more modern certainly than Chernobyl and was considered very, very safe. I, I suppose the answer, the, the point is, uh, there's always some, you can't have a 100% safe system 
right? But you can have the most safe within ex- expected possibilities that could be out there. Well, I, w- I would say that, um, you know, you need to work within a design basis. And then uh, one thing that Fukushima has taught us is that we need to think outside of our design basis. So, um, you know, for instance, uh, in Lake Ontario, we don't expect tsunamis, right? Um, having said that, though, the, the Japanese didn't think that there would be a tsunami of that size. Uh, so in that case, um, the, our regulator challenged all of us and required us to take a look at our design basis and start thinking, you know, outside of the design basis, say, what if something happens outside of that? So um, I can't speak to all the different nuclear power plants, but I know that they've, they've had to look at, um, at scenarios that are outside of the design basis to say, well, if this did happen, what would you do? And, uh, and they've analyzed that. And uh, for the reactor here as well, you know, we've looked at, you know, things that, yes, may not be um, um, really credible, but we're going to look at it to say, okay, but if it did happen, what would we do? And, uh, and I think that's definitely one of the lessons learned from, uh, from Fukushima that's been implemented. And from this last weekend, do you think that an alarm like this and the discussion that obviously you and I are having, that others are having that spills out of this, do you think that this discussion ultimately makes people hear what you are saying that this really is a very safe system or do you think this creates uncertainty with people what do you, what do you think comes out of something that happened this weekend well i think the the discussion is good um the one thing that i get from it and i hope people get from it is the fact that the province um, has a really good program in place to manage emergencies including radiological nuclear emergencies and the notification system that they have um, is built to help us all understand that an event has happened and communicate with us. And I think, um, in my opinion, although this was, uh, you know, I can't speak to the investigation that's going on as to how it happened, at the same time, I think we've all seen that if it did happen, um, that we would all be able to be notified um, in this method along with many others, but uh, but in this method as well. So to me, uh, I'm hoping people see it as a positive in the sense that, you know, if an event like this was to occur, here's a communication method where you would be updated as to what's going on. Josek McMaster, Senior Health Physicist. Really appreciate you taking some time today. Thank you so much. No problem, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. No call as of yet from our Asperomancer. <laughs> we, we were talking last hour about a woman in Britain who reads the future by tossing asparagus spears in the air and reading how they land. And we, oh, maybe that's her. Uh, we, we said we would, if she, we wanted to get her on the air. And so if she would know, cause she's reading the future, she would know we're trying to reach her. And if she called, that would be proof of her asparagus abilities. No call yet, but we, we, we got time and there's a time difference. So maybe that's the excuse. Maybe that's the reason. Anyway, if the asparomancer gives us a call, we will be sure to break into regular programming. <laughs> <laughs> to to have her on because boy I want to talk to anybody that can read the future through asparagus I love asparagus I mean that would be a great way to read the future way better than Brussels sprouts you don't see anybody reading the future through Brussels sprouts or kale there's no kale answer <laughs> there's nobody's ever said I got a good idea I'm going to buy bushelfuls of kale well a few people have done that and you can see them. You can always tell who are the kale eaters because they're the ones walking around looking very unhappy. There's nobody that eats kale that is a happy person, I don't think. It's like joggers. Oh, I love jogging. And then you see them run by. Have you ever seen a happy looking jogger? No. I mean, it may be good for you. And I go and I try and run and I hate it. 
Which, by the way, can I say one more thing before we dive into this second hour of the show today? Just as a as a as a tip for gym etiquette. All right, and and I say this with love. If you are going to the gym on a nightly basis, and good for you for doing it because you're looking after yourself, you're trying to improve your health, you're trying to get in better shape, all the rest. But if you're going to go to the gym on a nightly basis, for the sake of every other person who is trying to do the same, it is not acceptable to just take your sweaty clothes, put them in the gym bag, and put the same clothes on the next day and do that five days in a row. By Friday, you smell like... I can't describe how you smell, but it's not good. And when I or someone else ends up on the treadmill beside you, it feels like I'm shoving my head in an elephant's butt as I'm trying to run. It's horrible. Just w- please, as, as, a, as a courtesy to your friends and gym mates, fresh clothes at least every second day. I don't think it's too much to ask. Let me ask Don Robertson who runs the Dundas Real McCoys and ComChoice Realty and runs a lot of, and runs. I mean, you can tell he runs. You're a, you're a big time runner. Do do you at least, when you go to the gym, do you at least take fresh clothes to make sure you don't smell horrible? I do, but I go between six and seven in the morning. I don't go every day. I only go three days a week. But you take fresh clothes. You know, it's like, it's like the guys, and this is even more in your alley. It's like the guys who open up the hockey bag, who have the same shirt they've worn under their equipment for three straight years, and you could run water over it into a bucket and make rubbing alcohol. Yeah. It's like a whole, it's just occasionally bring some new fresh clothes, air it out, give to, it a wash. Tune in price, you wash all our stuff up so we don't, we don't give those guys that opportunity. No, but I'm talking men's league stuff where the guy. Oh, or the same towel all year. Yeah. And it's frozen in February and they still try and use it. But it's got, it's frozen, but it has mushrooms growing off yeah, of oh it yeah, because, ugh. There's mold you find in your attic on it. It, it, it. Honestly, like I just, I don't think it's too much to ask if you're going to use a public gym that you just occasionally. I'll bet women don't do it. I'll bet you're talking about guys. Oh, I've, well, Women are far too pride, proud, which is why sometimes women think guys are there was, there was a gym. There was a gym I used to go to years ago, and there was a guy there who I, I don't, uh, look, again, I applaud anybody for going because it's good for your health, but he wore a wool sweater, a brown wool sweater and brown corduroys in the gym every day. <laughs> he didn't want to be there. And he wore the same every day. And it's like, first of all, who wears a wool sweater to work out? And like I, back in the old, old, old days of hockey, you wore a wool sweater because the games were played outside or in a building with no heat. It was to keep you warm. When you're in a warm, hot gym where people are sweating, and you're wearing a wool sweater, I assure you, you are not going to smell appetizing in a couple days, in a couple hours. <laughs> but to pull that sweater back on the second time when it's still dewy from the day before. At least turn it inside out. No, that's even worse. <laughs> that's even worse. Anyway, enough about that. Don, you, uh, did you see what happened with the Houston Astros today? Or did you hear what happened with the Houston sure Astros? Sure did. Yeah, that's big. So the Houston Astros won the 2017 World Series. By cheating. Well, and yeah, and baseball has investigated and discovered that they were using technological advances, technological uses to steal signs. The camera in center field. Right. That was picking up the catcher sign so they knew what kind of pitch was coming mm-hmm. and relaying it to the batter and 
they end up winning the World Series. Now, stealing signs has been a part of baseball for as long as baseball has existed, but it's always been a... When there's a guy in second base. Exactly. There's, it's been a it's been a an honorable kind of cheating, if you want to call it that. Yeah, both teams are doing the same thing. Both teams are doing it. And at, when you're doing it that way, the catcher has a way that he can hide or disguise or whatever. There's ways that if the guy's on second, you know that you can do things to... This was... This is using technology and of course they're doing it in their own stadium so they have an advantage over whoever else they're playing which is what makes this especially bad because if both teams are doing it the old-fashioned way doesn't matter what stadium you're in both teams can do it anyway uh baseball came down on them very 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 hard today five million dollar fine that's the least of their problems because they're gonna that's not a big deal it's also the maximum it's the max but it's still not a big deal but uh, but they've lost their first and second round draft picks this year and next, and their manager and co- manager and general manager were both suspended for a year and promptly fired by the team today. But here's my question, Don. If they cheated, and that's what baseball, Major League Baseball has said they did, if they cheated to win the World Series, why stop here? Why not forfeit that World Series and say they are no longer the champions of 2017. It's a pretty good argument, I think. I mean, um, Shoeless Joe Jackson, the two th- what, the 1919 Black Sox scandal, um, everybody paid a heavy price for cheating. Pete Rose can't get into the Hall of Fame. Um, if you want to set the bar pretty high, then I, I think you'd make a recall on all the rings. I mean, it it would be, on the one hand, you could say, well, that's unfair to the players because none of the players are being punished directly with this. I think the biggest reason none of the players are being punished is because as soon as you start to punish players, you open up the uh, collective bargaining agreement and what you can do. I mean, you, you have a can of worms on your hands. The, if you players, the players all knew. But the players knew. They had to know. They were, they were the ones getting tipped off. Anybody that went to bat... And uh, the bench coach or whoever yelled his name twice, you know, Scotty, Scotty, let's go. You know, it's a fastball. I mean, you know what I mean? So the players, all the players were in on it. Why is it a legitimate championship? I used the argument today that said when Ben Johnson got caught, it was Charlie Francis, his coach, who had hooked him up with the stuff and injected the stuff and showed him how to use the stuff. Yeah. And it was Dr. Astaf, Jamie Astafan, who had been the guy who gave it to him. But they didn't then say, those two guys, because they were the ones who arranged all this, they were the ones, and Ben, you can keep running and keep your gold medal. He instantly lost his gold medal. Yes. And so I go back to my point. I think that baseball, while they've come down very hard in certain ways on this, have still whiffed on what I think is the bigger one, which is if you really believe that this was cheating, if you are saying that what they did was cheating, how can you let the result of that cheating stand? Unless you maybe believe that other teams were doing it too. But I don't know if it would be that. I I would suspect and suggest that then, then all of a sudden now you're punishing the fans. And the fans are the ones that buy the tickets and the sweaters and everything else and why would the fans have to pay the price to lose their world championship? Because fans take ownership of championships. 
Where was did Ben Johnson not have fans in Canada who desperately wanted him to beat Carl Lewis, who emotionally were so invested on him beating Carl Lewis, and they had no problem taking that away? Uh, you bring up an interesting point, but I think it's different. Uh, they have uh, the uh, baseball teams have season ticket holders, they have rights holders. You know, they have people that are full time invested for several several years. Sometimes, some cases, centuries in hoping Houston win a world championship. And I think if you strip it away from them, they buy, they perhaps boycott. <clears throat> Whether the owner knew or not, he looks like he's trying to be a stand-up guy and say, I had no idea what's going on. Not, not only are they suspended without pay, I'm firing them. If the owner knew, let me jump in for one sec. If the owner knew, because he fired those two guys immediately today, the general manager and the manager, if he knew... You have to believe there will be a lawsuit filed almost immediately by those guys saying, you got to take him down too. I'm just saying, if that's the, if he's, I, I, there's nothing to suggest that the owner knew at this point is what I'm saying. No, you're right though. If the president and the, uh, the, um, the general manager and the coach, the manager of the team know that the owner knew, the owner may have already said, you're fired and here's $2 million each. Go away quietly. And Go away quietly. There's nothing to see here. Like, you know, who knows what's what's going on? But if they were both, if they were both present, and those secrets are hard to keep. Like, when I say the players knew, obviously the players were taking advantage of the, the advance notice, which, which kind of tells you how hard a game this is. So most of those guys knew when a fastball was coming. Why didn't they beat everybody 25 to 2? Well, it's still hard. Yeah, you're right. It's still very hard to hit even when you have So if your batters 80% of the time in the World Series at home games know what he's throwing and they're still not blowing everybody out, it's a tough game. Well, they did put up 13 runs in one game, although the Dodgers put up 12 that World Series. So Maybe the Dodgers had a camera too. No one has to that there's other teams. The Red Sox are a team that has been, there's an investigation going on into them as Same well. Same bench coach. That's why well, he now the, man, now the manager of the Red Sox was the bench coach of Houston when Boston That's, won their World Series. So you got to think that if the hammer fell today, it's really going to fall when it comes to. Well, I think Major League Baseball said there'll be an announcement on his suspension when the investigation to the 2018 Red Sox comes in. Now, if they find a camera in the Green Monster... Well, there is one though. I mean, this this was done. We hear with, as I understand it, with cameras that were legally allowed to be there. That you just weren't allowed to use it for the stuff. I think that's what what they said. I could be wrong, but um, well, if the camera was there for everyone's access, why didn't the other team watch the same? Could be. I mean, I, I may have been wrong on that one. There may be a, a different camera that was put in. I, my understanding was that there was access. Anyway, the point is. We're into a level of cheating here that part of me says if, you know, that old line that, well, it's just part of baseball. It's just part of baseball and everyone's been cheating for years. I mean, stealing bases. By definition, stealing is a, you know, the word implies some sort of wrong behavior or immoral behavior, but it's part, it's always been, you're trying to pick up on a pitcher's motion that you can see that he's doing a tell, you can, he's doing something different. What's well, all, but that's all been part of the human part of the that's game, right. not applying technology to get an advantage the other team can't have. Oh, that's, uh, there's no doubt about it. When you can see a, a pitcher fidgeting in his glove, is he going to throw a knuckleball? 
right? I mean, you always watch the mannerisms. Right. The leg kick depends on what you're looking for, right? But the good players, the the premium hitters, will tell you I can pick something that a pitch I can, I know what he's going to throw half the time because he does something different every time. And they never usually talk about it till they retire because they don't want the pitchers knowing that they know. Well, Ricky Henderson always <laughs> could figure out very quickly when a pitcher was going to throw to first or when a pitcher was going to throw home. That's technically, that's kind of the same thing as stealing signs, sort of, but no one has a problem with it because it's the human element and then you've figured it out and... You know, I don't think Ricky Henderson back in his day was supposed to say, wait, 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 pitcher, hold on. I, I saw what you were doing there. Try again. Like, yeah, no, right. that you're not supposed to do that. But when you now use a techno- technological advantage the other team can't have, it's something else altogether. It's a whole other level then. Well, you know, you, and you talk about stealing, stealing second. Well, they, they, they actually never steal second. The bag stays there. It's just a term. <laughs> Ricky Henderson did when he set the all-time record. That was third. He picked it up and walked away with it. Uh, (laughs) And again, if you are stealing signs in the human way, just by seeing what if you've got a guy on second base, by the time he can look in and see the sign and do something to relay it to the batter, the pitch is probably already on the way. It's very difficult. Meanwhile, if you've got a technological advantage, so a camera camera show, a catcher puts down finger number two and instantly someone in the dugout can see it and yell, mayday, you know, whatever. So the, like, it's much faster for the batter to be able to process the message to be relayed and the batter to be able to process than it is in the old fashioned way. Anyway, I just, I, I look at this and I think it, I'm, I'm a little disappointed that baseball wouldn't have really tried to send a message, really tried to send a message and say, if this truly is cheating, the result is illegitimate and therefore you are no longer the champions. We may not even have a champion. Maybe we can't give it to the Dodgers who lost because they didn't win. So we're just cleaning the slate and 2017 had no champion that year. Just like the, uh, there was a year the Allen Cup wasn't awarded because of the war. They didn't have the competition. So now... I still think you go back to Major League Baseball thinking about how badly are we going to deprive the fans of Houston. And remember, my theory on pro sports, it always goes back to the money. Mm. So if all of a sudden people are going to start demanding refunds or I'm going to cancel my season tickets, there was a lot of thought put into this before they come up with that. That said, it's about as harsh a penalty as Major League Baseball have ever doled out. Uh, Pete Rose might argue. Pete Rose would The Black have Sox might argue. They, the Black Sox can't argue they're gone. I just... Actually, look, I, I did see Joe Jackson play, but it was in the Field of Dreams. That's right. Uh, and as for the fans, I get your point. At the same time, they did get their money's worth. They got to go to the games. They got to cheer. They got to have that moment. And I go back to my Ben Johnson example. We got to all have that moment when he beat Carl Lewis. That was fun. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. And it, of course it was taken away later and that stunk, but we still can't argue that you didn't have that moment yep. to see him beat Carl Lewis. And then only to find out that there was nobody in the race that wasn't juiced. Well, that's, oh, no, there was one. Was there one? There was one. There's was a book out, there's a book out, uh, and I can't remember the name of it. I'll think of it in a moment by a British author. I had him on my show one time who wrote about that race, the dirtiest race in history. It was called. He wrote a book about it. And I think all but one of the runners at in the final at some point in their career was found to have 
had some sort of either doping infraction or suspicion or something else. There was one guy, and I think he was second last, which probably says All you need to know about the Jews. There was a uh, game between the Edmonton Oilers and Calgary Flames last Saturday, I believe. Uh, Battle of Alberta game, and it was much like the old Battles of Alberta. A lot of nastiness and a lot of physical play. Well, Matthew Kachuk, who plays for Calgary, took a few runs at a player on Edmonton's team, Zach Cassian. And some people would say they were marginal hits. I would say they were probably in the modern NHL. They probably categorized as marginal hits, close to the head, if not contacting the head. Well, after the third one, Zach Cassian had had about enough and grabbed Matthew Kachuk and threw a few punches at him and flipped him around. And Matthew Kachuk wanted nothing to do with him because he would have probably knocked his nose into Saskatchewan if he'd connected. He's a big, tough guy. Anyway, uh, the NHL today said no discipline for Matthew Kachuk, who threw the hits that, as I say, were on the edge. But Zach Cassian gets a two-game suspension for dropping the gloves and throwing a few punches. What do you think about that? I think it's wrong. I think Matthew Kachuk got what he deserved. And if he's dumb enough to go after Edmonton's tough guy three times and think that there wasn't going to be a price to be paid and not stand up for it, I think Matthew Kachuk uh, was wrong. And Matthew Kachuk got what probably had coming to him. He did get ragdolled, and Castle went after him. And quite frankly, I, the, the clips I saw, the Calgary Flames did very little to come in and protect them, which may be telling you a lot of what you need to know about his teammates because there's ask, no real defense of him. Let me ask you two things about this one. First of all, because this is the problem I've had with the NHL and their discipline forever. It doesn't matter who's handling discipline with the NHL, and we've talked about this before. The fact that Cassian, who got hit these three times and once in or right a- around the head, if he had stayed down and had a concussion, would Matthew Kachuk have received supplemental discipline? Yes. So why are you disciplining or not disciplining exclusively based on the result rather than the action? That's been a long time argument of mine. Uh, if a guy takes a swing at a guy with a stick and misses him, the guy's basically guilty of bad aim. The right. intent's the same. So again, going back to why would you target Edmonton's tough guy with those kind of hits? In the old days, if they if he didn't went after a thirty goal scorer and did that three times, the tough guy would come in and straighten him out. Kachuk went after the tough guy. So what do you expect when you keep doing it? Now you know you you might want to know who's on the ice and not put yourself in a vulnerable position. But all three were borderline, and I don't blame Casson for doing what he did. Um, I don't think it should be in a a two-game suspension, but the world of the National Hockey League has changed dramatically in the last 10 years, and that now is egregious, apparently. My second point to this is they've said that the hits by Kachuk on Cassian were no problem because no injury resulted. What happens if these hits are not on Zach Cassian but are on Connor McDavid? 20-game suspension. Probably not that much, but you're big suspension. But it w- you would get my a significant point. suspension. Yeah, and 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 and, and again, on the other side of it, if it's not Edmonton's tough guy, if it's Connor McDavid doing it, 
what Casson did. Is there any suspension? I suggest there's not. If, if Connor McDavid were to fight back? Yeah. Probably not. Right. If Connor McDavid had done almost the exact same thing, he'd have been kicked out of the game for aggressor, and they'd have been looking the other way, saying no harm, no foul. He was really upset, and Kachuk should know better by going after one of their premier players. Like they, It's easy to pick and choose. You go, ah, well, you know, geez, that's his role, and he went after a guy that doesn't fight much. It's big justification. The league doesn't want to suspend a superstar, but a fourth-line guy is a little easier to suspend. My issue with this, and I've got a bunch of issues because I think the NHL has m- messed this one up, quite honestly. Again, mostly because of the, I go back to my point and what you were saying. It's a, In my mind, it's a ridiculous thing to say we're suspending you based on the result or the non-result. An injury should not be the determiner determinant if you get a suspension or not. If the action is egregious, you should be suspended for that, not just if the person's hurt. But beyond that, they play again a back-to-back at the end of this month. I don't think that the NHL has done itself any favors by this, because I think that now Edmonton, even though Cassian has a two-game suspension, I think that Edmonton, because the NHL did nothing to Kachuk, and did something to them, I think there are 10 guys on the Oilers who will be looking to take off Kachuk's head in those supplemental or those subsequent two games that you could have, if you had allowed this scrap to just happen and leave it alone, it probably goes away or settles down a little bit now. Now, that next game, in my opinion, or one of the two next games, is going to be mayhem. It's going to be mayhem. Well, you know 20 years ago. It would have been bloodshed. Domi and Probert would have lined up against each other and it would have been on right off the bat. So that's out of the game. And that's okay. The game's changed a lot, right? Here's the interesting part is that, and here's what I would watch for, because I know what I'd do if I was a general manager in Edmonton, but I've never been asked. Um, And they've had a lot of general managers that didn't win. I don't know why they didn't call. But (laughs) um, to watch what happens in the old days, there would have been four or five tough guys, heavy guys, they call them now, playing in the American League, and you would watch for them to get called up for the game. You know, like, it's a, surprisingly enough, Ogie Oglethorpe, with his one goal and one assist in 93 games and 12,000 minutes and penalties, been called up to the Edmonton Oilers. In the old days, they would have done that. It will be interesting to see what Steve Eiserman, the um, what kind of a lineup he puts out there against Calgary next game. Not Iserman. No. no uh, Kenny Holland. Kenny Holland. Sorry, Iserman's yep. in Detroit. Um, Kenny Holland does and does with his coaches. I mean, that's what I do. And then the NHL will be grumbling away, and they're probably for him saying, don't even think of this. Like, the leagues now seem to manage more things than they used to, but there's not, there's not four or five tough guys on each team anymore. Some teams don't have any. So if I, I don't was, know who the Leafs tough guy is. They don't have one. But if I was the Edmonton Oilers, and this is totally unhockey player like, it would require a an attitude adjustment. If I was the Edmonton Oilers, you know that Kachuk is going to take a run at Cassie in next game as well because he why wouldn't he? If I'm the Edmonton Oilers, I'm telling Cassie and it doesn't matter where you hit him, snap your head back, make it look like he caught you in the head, and stay down. Yeah. Sell you're it, a soccer player. Sell it, sell it, sell it, and if you and we will get him suspended for that. And I hate that kind of thing, but 
look, it, it's it's going to come to that. If I'm not arguing, I'm not arguing for the NHL to return to the days of the Broad Street Bullies and Boston Bruins, where it was just mayhem on the ice all the time. I'm not, but I think there is a role in if you are going to take runs at guys. You are not, you are going to have to stand up for yourself at some point. If you want to clean up the game and not have dirty hits, that's the best possible way to do it. It's the deterrent rather than just saying, well, the NHL is not going to do anything. So, because what happens if next game, Don, leave aside the fakery? What happens if next game Kachuk really does take a run at someone and really does injure him? Is the NHL responsible then for the injury to that player by telling Kachuk that that's okay? Yep. Well, it'll be interesting to see because if he does it again, they're going to say we're going to take things into our own hands. Rest assured, Kachuk is likely going to get run over if he's just skating off on a line change. Like he, the Oilers will pound him relentlessly. I mean, he should expect to get hit, and there's not a lot of hitting in the National Hockey League anymore. Everybody will be taking a run at him, even McDavid. He's a captain. Like, you know, if he gets a chance to run him over, he will. He won't run over five guys this year. He'll run him over next game. Because the entire team have to send a message to the NHL and to Kachuk. Again, I, I go back to, uh, I don't think that there was a suspension to be had in this. If you're not going to suspend one, you don't suspend, you either suspend both or you sus- suspend no one in this case. And I, I just, I look at the NHL and Don, we, we talk about this so often that the supplemental discipline department, they call it player safety, which is the biggest oxymoron in the world to me because it's just, it's so ridiculous. But they mangle discipline and have for years and years and years. They get it wrong almost every single time, which is hard to do. (laughs) And if you just, okay, you know what? You guys want to go kill each other? That's fine. You do it. And for the guy, and the funny thing is the guy who's in charge of discipline now with the NHL is George Peros. A guy who would have never, who would have done exactly what Cassian did and would have never stood around and allowed himself to be run over like this. And at the time would have said, that's exactly how hockey should be played. That's exactly how you take care of something like this. And now that he's off the ice, as I say, I think that what Now he's the voice of reason and safety. I think what's happened is by doing this, I think the next game these two teams becomes much, much, much worse. Well, the Battle of Alberta will crank back up again like it did back when Cliff Fletcher was running the the Flames and uh, and uh, Sada was running the Oilers. And it's that part of it's good for the game. They need a good rivalry. Sure it is. Sure it is. And, uh, you know, we should have Rick Natras on to ask him how that rivalry went. You can still watch the highlight reel of Mark Messier, I think it was, taking a flying elbow into his head and him wobbling off the ice, which was not even a two-minute penalty back then. No, it's just part of the game. Part of the game. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.